All right, Jesse, last week's case was so devastating on so many levels. What's the story this week? When a beautiful, ambitious young woman goes missing, the authorities look into a relationship with a politically connected attorney who is known as a pillar of the community. That is, until his true nature is revealed. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dead dreams, killer screams, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are excited as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of lovely patrons. Welcome to Jasmine R. and Amy K., Jessica J. and Jess H., Victoria S. and Shannon L., And last but most certainly not least, (laughs) Yvonne S. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We have some exciting news about Patreon. Andy has decided that she is now doing a story, or an episode rather, every month. So right now, if you sign up, you get two bonus episodes a month, and one is being hosted by our gal, Andy Cassette. We will update the Patreon website to reflect this, and we should probably post in the Facebook group too, Jessica. I think we shall. And if you haven't, hop on over there and join our Facebook discussion group because it is very fun and I am frequently lurking around and saying hi. Yeah, Andy's going to do some cool stuff. Like she's going to be focused on, of course, true crime, but a lot of cults, maybe a little bit of paranormal, some of that like true crime adjacent material. Yeah, the things that we all definitely creepily love. Yes, for sure. Well, you know, the very end of this episode, I have a little paranormal touch as well. So you're creeping into my territory already? That's what you're... (laughs) You just started and I'm already creeping in. (laughs) Yes, and this was a a very highly recommended case. Great book. So I'm going to jump right into it, Andy. Let's do it. It was a beautiful spring day in late April in 1993 in Wilmington, Delaware, and 27-year-old Anne-Marie Fahey was attending a fundraiser for the Women's Democratic Fund with a coworker. She had been working for the governor since he had been a congressman the year prior, but the excitement, the high-end parties, the fast-paced world of politics still felt new. The governor's office employed young, vibrant people with ambition and brains. Anne-Marie was all of that and happened to be gorgeous as well, standing 5'10", svelte, and with a pile of auburn hair that was reminiscent of Julia Roberts' wild curls in Pretty Woman. The best. The best look. It's no surprise that she caught the eye of 43-year-old Tom Capano, a well-connected attorney with an impeccable reputation. 
It was Anne-Marie, however, who ended up breaking the ice. She knew the older lawyer was acquainted with her sister, who had only spoken glowingly of the man. Anne-Marie's coworker recalled a polite conversation, an animated and surface-level getting-to-know-you type of chat. Both young women were flattered to receive all of Mr. Capano's attentions as he was an important figure in the Democratic Delaware scene. And they were relative newcomers, still green, still hungry, and working their way up the ladder. Behind the respectable chatter and casual jokes, there lay a frisson, an undeniable chemistry, a spark that would turn into a complicated friendship, something more, only barely masquerading as platonic, and from there into flirtation, a full-blown affair, and then a dangerous obsession. At the end of the day, infidelities and dark secrets would be revealed. One person would be dead, and two families would be destroyed forever. This is the story of Anne-Marie Fahey and Tom Capano, and it came to us thrice recommended. So thank you to Erica K, Lorraine M, and Terry A. If somebody else recommended it, just pop me a message and we'll give you a sticker or something because I thought that there might have been even more people because I just remember seeing this case come up over and over again. And also, I appreciate, as always, Everyone who makes a recommendation, if they include a book, and today's primary source was impeccably written. It's called And Never Let Her Go by our queen, Anne Rule. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if y'all like deep dives for true crime books, Anne Rule is the way to go. This book was just about 500 pages and she gets into every detail of everybody's life, which obviously you guys know I appreciate. I'm like a big fan of the backstory. And I also read another Medium post by Lori Johnston, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think, in one of our episodes. She writes some great true crime Medium posts and she just joined our Facebook discussion group as well. So hey. Yeah. Hi, Lori. I did tell her I had commented back. I said I'd be probably citing her again because I do like her work on Medium so much. And it looks like I am citing it sooner rather than later. So here we are. <laughs> Check out Lori Johnston on Medium. Let's start by talking about Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie was the sixth and final child born to parents Robert and Kathleen Fahey on January 27, 1966. She was the super baby. Not only is she the youngest of six, but the other kids were more like one to two years apart, and she was five years younger than her closest sibling. Okay. So everyone in the family doted on her, especially her mother, who I think that it was a really special time for her mother because when she had the other kids, they were just like all over each other, and there was just a lot of noise in the house. And because her closest sibling in age was five years older, that meant that all of the five older kids were already in school. Yeah. And so she got to have this very special one-on-one -on -one time with Anne-Marie as a baby, toddler, and young child. And definitely Mother Kathleen was the beating heart of this Irish Catholic family. Both parents had come to the United States from Ireland when they were younger, though they met in the United States. And their home was just full of a lot of love, laughter, and joy. Unfortunately, the joy came to a halt when matriarch Kathleen died of lung cancer in 1975. Ugh. And that was when Anne-Marie was only nine years old. It's really hard. It was a crushing blow for the entire family. And the situation was made much, much worse because Father Robert, who had always teetered on the edge of alcoholism, basically just 
gave up when his wife died. He couldn't function. He couldn't handle life. And he just crawled into the bottle. Yeah. I mean, there's two options of where you go from that. You either pick up all of the pieces and you become like super dad or you completely give in to. And that's what he did. Like, I think that he was always like a big social drinker, but it was something that was like managed because he had such a strong partner and she kept him on his toes and everything. And his grief was immense. I mean, the family, her siblings especially, knew their father before he gave in to the alcoholism. Yeah. And they knew that he had been a great dad. It was just that trigger point. He just lost it. And he ended up not going to work. He lost his job. For a little while, there was some pensions and insurance money that carried them through. They were drawing Social Security. But eventually, all of that money dried up and the family really struggled to survive. The older kids did their best to take care of Anne-Marie, but frequently the bills went completely unpaid. So they would go months without electricity. They went an entire year without telephone, which this is obviously back in the day before cell phones. So there was just no contact with the outside world. And they would also go months without water. What? Yeah. So they had the water turned off at their house as well. Anne-Marie hid her circumstances very stoically. She didn't want to be considered the kid whose family was falling apart. So she would take hot showers after gym class at school without revealing to her peers that it was the only way she could take a hot shower at all. Yeah. Yeah. As she became a teenager, Anne-Marie was the last left at home. So she tried her damnedest to get her father on the right path. She would pour booze down the sink and he would react obviously very violently about this. And while there was no reports that he hit her, he was very emotionally abusive and verbally abusive. He would drunkenly call Anne-Marie fat. He would say she was ugly. He'd tell her that her legs were gigantic and that no man was ever going to want such a fat, ugly girl like her. Oh my God, that's horrifying. And Anne-Marie knew rationally that Obviously, the alcohol was a major factor behind these ugly words. But but still, it's the one parent you have left on earth and they're saying all these horrific, horribly abusive things to you. Cruel, cruel things. And she did not shake that voice in her head, those words in her head for her entire life. She had to work really, really hard to overcome feelings of being overweight, unlovable, unworthy, even as she grew into a very beautiful, very svelte young woman, she ended up struggling with an eating disorder for the rest of her life. Of course. How much of that, like, hatred and horrible nonsense are you supposed to be able to, like, endure from the person who's supposed to love you most? At such a impressionable age. Yeah. When you're barely holding it together in every other way. And Anne-Marie was incredibly strong-willed. Her childhood friend said, quote, Annie's had the shittiest life. A lot of people who had what she had would fold, but she wouldn't do it. She was strong. And Anne-Marie was bright. She was very bright. She was a motivated student despite her chaotic home life, even though her father ended up losing their house completely when she was 15 years old. So rendering homeless, she still ended up persuading a family that they were friends with to take her in so that she could finish at the high school that she had been going to. I believe she had to live with her siblings for a little while. I mean, she was determined to graduate and she was determined 
to go to college. And so in 1984, she did graduate high school. And with the help of student loans and a very intense waitressing schedule, because she had to earn her own way, she accomplished her goal. She went to college. She graduated with a degree in political science from Wesley College. Unbelievable. Yeah, this was very difficult for a lot of reasons. Obviously, she had to work full time while she was trying to go to school full time. And she did suffer from mental health issues. And she ended up having a major depressive episode that lasted for months while she was in school. And it took her a while to get back on her feet. But to her credit, Anne Marie got professional help in a time when a lot of people were not seeking out that type of help. She pulled herself out of the hole with therapy, medication, and a whole lot of grit. Wow. It wasn't all bleak, however, though. She also studied Spanish by living with a family in Spain, and she became perfectly fluent. So the rest of her life, she spoke perfect Spanish. She was also awarded an internship with the OAS, Organization of American States, in Washington, D.C., which is where she got a taste for politics. At 26 years old, she was hired in an administrative role for Congressman Tom Carper, who went on to become the governor of Delaware. And he took Anne-Marie with him. When she got hired and she found out he was running for governor, which was a big part of her job was like helping with the campaign, there was a big question in the air of like, was she going to be with him when he became governor? And he absolutely took her with him. Wow. Anne-Marie Starr was on the rise. And... She outwardly was incredibly confident, poised, funny, and impressive. Everyone who knew her, like, just on a surface level, said she was, like, unbelievably entertaining. There was, like, a more than one quote, which is a true crime joke now, that said she literally lit up a room. (laughs) Yeah. And I know it's like, oh, every true crime show says that. But there was more than a couple quotes from, I think, her brother is one and then somebody else who knew her that said she had this huge smile and she always had this like big boisterous laugh that you would just ripple across the room. So outwardly, she looked super confident, super beautiful. She's got this amazing job. She's working her way up through the ranks. But internally, she super battled demons. And I think, and this is based on psychologists she worked with speaking to Anne Rule, a lot of these issues stemmed from her childhood and her teen years. She was diagnosed with OCD and anorexia. Her psychologist felt as though the OCD came from never having her own space, never having control over her environment because she, like her house was taken away from her when she was 15. She never knew if she'd be able to shower, if the lights were going to be turned on. So when she was able to have her own space and then ultimately her own apartment, she was very meticulous over that environment. Yeah. And then I think we've already talked about why she might have developed an eating disorder based on the cruel things her father said to her. Even her friends and family had a like a loving nickname for her. They called her Anal Annie because she was so tidy, so clean. Anne-Marie was just three months into her 27th year when she met charming 43-year-old Tom Capano at the fancy fundraiser. He seemed to have all of the things that she felt like she lacked. He had confidence, wealth. He had been raised in a stable and affluent home. But he also had a couple of other things that Anne-Marie certainly did not have. A wife and four children. Stop it. Mm. Hmm? Okay, bro. (laughs) 
Like, I can't. I can't. So let's move on and talk about this louse with a spouse, Mr. Thomas Capano. Just like Anne Marie's parents had immigrated to the United States, so had Thomas Capano's grandparents, though they had come from Italy. And unlike the Fahis, the Capanos had not struggled but thrived in their new country. Patriarch Louis Capano Sr. had started a construction business that became incredibly successful and generated great wealth for their family. Tom Capano was born on October 11th, 1949, the second of five children and the first son. He had an older sister and three younger brothers. Tommy, as his friends and family called him, was the most academically gifted of the siblings and was very much the golden child, especially to his mother, Marguerite. But also, just seemingly in general, he went to a fancy prep school, he drove a convertible sports car, and he was one of definitely the most popular kids in town. According to Anne Rule's book, a Wilmington woman said the following about Tommy Capano in high school. This was very glowing. It was like a little bit too much for me. And it was a mom of the community? It said a woman. I think it was somebody he grew up with. So like now by the time Anne Rule is interviewing her, she's a woman. But okay. she was at school with him. Okay. She said, I remember him in his black convertible. He was dating this really rich girl. Beautiful, of course. But I can't even remember her name. She lived in a house that was basically Tara with the white pillars and all. Tommy's car would be parked out front. I knew then that he was kind of, well, when you were around Tommy, you thought you were in the presence of a god. Oh, this is so 80s. Yeah, I don't think there's like the popular kid god worship. I don't even think it was there when we went to school anymore. No, I mean, it was like, I feel like there was still the like crumbs of it, but like fawning over like the popular football player guy. Like, yeah, oh, it's such like a Gaston. pedestal. <laughs> yeah. Gaston. It's like the three blondes. The Jake, oh. the Jake Ryan, you know, it's the Jake Ryan. Yes. Mindset. Is that 16 candles? Yeah. Yeah. That mindset. So she said, none of the rest of us would ever hope to actually date him. Oh my God. Another classmate said, when Tommy talked to you, you had the feeling that you were the only person in the room. He focused entirely on you, no eyes darting around the room or over your shoulder. So I guess he made these ladies feel pretty special. And I mean, they also said that like he was actually like a good guy. He wasn't like shoving kids in lockers and stuff. Like he helped one of his diabetic classmates and like he was generally a nice guy too. So like no one was really that jealous. It was one of those situations where like even the guys liked him. Or he was just literally born a politician. <laughs> we might get there. You might have a sixth sense about where we're moving in this story, Andrea. Once a politician, always a politician. Yep. So he graduated high school in 1967, which, if you're doing the math at home, is only one year after his future love interest, Anne Marie, was born. And he went on to our old stomping grounds, Andy, Boston College. Well, that's not really our old stomping grounds. It's actually the like enemy of my <laughs> the enemy old of your grounds. stomping grounds. Yeah, so Andy went to BU. To, oh, I was about to say the BU one because that's how I'm into sports. I am. What was it? BC sucks. I think was there. That's the chant. Yeah, it was sucks to be you and BC sucks. <laughs> sucks is that they said sucks to be you to you guys <laughs> and to you guys in quotations because I was not ever involved. You are not a sporty gal. Shocker. 
Yeah, they have a big hockey rivalry, right? Yes, huge. And we didn't even have a football team. We just had soccer. I mean, it's like wasn't even a sports school. Well, let's not talk about Emerson. You I, know, yeah, the, you were the worse. sportiest of Boston <laughs> universities and colleges. The most sporty thing about it was it was across from the park. Hey, we had a Quidditch team, so Quidditch, Quidditch, like, like Harry, in Potter, Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> that was the big sport at Emerson. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he's at Andy's great rival, Boston College, and it was there that he met Kay a nursing student who would become his wife. Tom credited Kay with his decision to go to law school, again at BC, because Kay was a year younger than him and he didn't want to leave her, so he went to law school. The couple was married in 1972 and they moved back to Wilmington, Delaware after Tom's graduation from law school so they could be closer to the close-knit Capano clan. And Tom did a lot. He worked as a public defender, and then he became a prosecutor, and then he was the deputy attorney general. After that, he decided to move into the more lucrative private sector, and he became a partner at a well-regarded, I think, more financial law firm. Along the way, he and Kay had four beautiful daughters. The charm that had been so well-documented in his teens and 20s continued to carry him throughout his 30s and early 40s. And Rule spoke to some women who had worked with Tom during his years in the court, and they said, He had a God-given knack for friendship, one court reporter recalled. It seemed to come so easily to him to treat people kindly, and everyone really liked him. He was friendly with everyone, and it didn't matter if it was a judge, a court reporter, or a janitor. Except his wife, who he was cheating on. Yeah, I mean, well, we don't know that yet. There's just a... Well, we do. I I gave it away. (laughs) Women around the courthouse were captivated by his sex appeal and by his voice. Oh, my God. He was not soft-spoken. Tom was gentle-voiced, and there's a difference. Some people call it charisma, but he had something more than that. Yeah, I mean, you guys will see. This is definitely one of those situations where you're going to look at the Instagram and you're going to go, really? That guy? But it's not about looks. It is about presence. It's about, I mean, everyone talks about how he just paid attention to you. It's not about the looks in this situation. It is just about how he's making these women feel. And they loved him. And unfortunately for Kay, getting to Andy's point, Tommy Capano loved the ladies right back. Though Tom wooed, dated, and as we'll come to find out, victimized quite a few women throughout his marriage and illustrious career, there was one woman who was his long-term extramarital affair partner. Her name was Debbie McIntyre, and the two had met because Debbie was married to Tom's law partner. Um... To make matters worse, before the affair started, Debbie had been good friends with Kay Capano. So it's just like all lies and deceit. All lies and deceit. He is gross. Just like Anne-Marie Fahey would be many years in the future. Debbie was 27 years old when she met Tom. And just like Anne-Marie, she also started a friendship with Tom that grew into something more when he continued to make her feel special and chosen at a time in her life when she felt anything but. Yeah. Debbie would later say, I wasn't happy in my marriage. I did not know actually how unhappy I was for a long time. My relationship with Tom was not the reason for my eventual divorce, but he fulfilled something in my life that I wasn't getting in my marriage. 
he actually paid attention to me. Oh my gosh. He appeared to genuinely care for me, to like me, to be interested in me as a friend. And I was flattered because my husband did not seem to be any of those things. Wow. This absolutely speaks to Tom's M.O. He would identify a woman who was vulnerable and open to his charms. And then he would worm his way into her heart and eventual pants by claiming he cared about her. He wanted to be her friend. It's the old Trojan platonic friendship horse. Wouldn't it just have been like so awesome if he just like actually wanted to like help people? (laughs) Yeah, it'd be really nice if people just genuinely made good friends and cared about one another without getting some weird sex or control situation in return. And actually, when I was reading about Anne-Marie, the reason why she got to do this like time abroad in Spain with a family, even though she obviously did not have a lot of money, was because she had met an older male professor who had taught her and wanted to like help her out and give her all these opportunities. And her siblings were like, "Uh uh-oh, watch out for this guy because his wife, I think, was also a professor and she was traveling a lot. So a lot of times they were alone together. Okay. And that guy actually ended up turning out to be what you're describing, Andy. Ended up just helping her, hooking her up with this family in Spain. Being an actual mentor. Being an actual mentor to her and not being a creep, which also might have contributed to... Anne-Marie not really seeing what was coming when she met Tom because she had had an older male in her life who had been kind and exclusively a good mentor to her. So this is very much how he picks up women and gets them under his thumb. The relationship turned for Debbie and Tom when he ambushed her with a kiss at a New Year's Eve party that their spouses were at. It was like a law firm party. And it wasn't just the kiss. He told her he was in love with her. He was madly in love with her. Oh, my gosh. Bold. Which is very catnippy to somebody that doesn't feel appreciated or understood or seen. To have somebody, like, just want to bang you, you're like, whatever. But to have somebody just passionately kiss you and say, I could not help myself because I'm so madly in love with you and I think about you all the time is like something that runs through your brain. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially if you're feeling a void of that at home, like that's going to completely connect the dots and you're going to be like swept off your feet. Oh, for sure. And the reason why she was friends with Kay too is because they had little kids of a similar age. So when you think about feeling postpartum or not attractive and your spouse isn't paying attention to you and your spouse doesn't seem to want to engage with you emotionally or sexually, this is very seductive. Yeah, but what about Kay? She's also postpartum and like, is he paying attention to her? Does he pay attention to everyone? Is that his thing? He is paying attention to everyone. Now, Kay did not participate in the Anne Rowe book. So I do not have exactly her perspective. She did testify later on, not to spoil things, guys. So there, there is a little bit of Kay's perspective, but not as much as we'd probably like. Yeah, but if that's for, like, her own healing, then that's important. Yeah, she doesn't need her business out there. For Debbie, she tried to hold off on the sexual bit because that happened New Year's. But by May, I think it was the end of May 1982, they were now sexually engaging. They were meeting up in motels for sex marathons. Wow. Yeah, so while Debbie divorced her husband when her second child was still a toddler, Tom did no such thing to answer your question, Andy. 
He went on to have three out of four of his daughters with Kay while he was conducting this long-term love affair with Debbie. Oh, my God. Sickening. Yeah. And that was confusing for Debbie, obviously, because she had gotten out of her marriage and she didn't understand why he was staying in it. Yeah. Did she ask him? She did. He's like, well, this is what you do. You know, I have a big family. I'm from a big family. Kay's from a big family. We're going to have more kids. That's just what you do. He said, look, like, I'm miserable in my marriage, and you're the only woman that I love, but I want to stay together for this family I'm building, and at least till the girls are older, and then we'll see if it's time for you and I to be together. And she believed him. She believed that there was some future time that they would end up together. And at this point, too, I think that it wasn't, foremost on her mind because she was getting her life together. She was moving out. She was moving into a new place. She was taking care of her kids. She hadn't worked since before she had kids. So she kind of had to figure out what she was going to do for a career. She ended up getting a job as a school administrator. So at this point, there was just so much chaos that she's like, I'm okay waiting. She was definitely hook, line, and sinker goner for this dude. Now, no one, no one knew about Tom's extramarital affairs, which by the way, I'm not going to mention every woman he cheated on with, but there was a good handful, at least that we know about, and probably a lot more. To the outside world, he was an amazing family man and a pillar of the community. He attended a Catholic church every Sunday with his family. He did considerable amounts of community service. Tom was also on the board of trustees for St. Mark's High School and Archmere Academies. He was a board member for the National Conference of Christians and Jews. Chairman of the Wilmington Parking Authority, he was in charge of the bench and bar committees, as well as the Delaware Supreme Court's Long Range Planning Committee. He was very connected. He was involved in everything. I honestly, when I hear about these people, though, who are doing all this and raising four kids and having all these affairs left and right, including basically a second wife in Debbie. Yeah. It blows my mind. It just exhausts me. I want to take a nap. I mean, I don't know, like, how involved he was with the kids. Was he really involved with them? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say Kay was doing the lion's share of that one. Yeah. By the time Tom first laid eyes on Anne-Marie at that fundraising party, Tom was a big deal dude with a sterling reputation. He also had a wife of over 20 years and a mistress for at least 12 Oh, my God. Anne Rule would observe that the three women looked absolutely nothing alike, but they all did have remarkable similarities. Similarities that made them very attractive to Tom. They were all Catholic, for starters. And then Anne Rule wrote, each was principally concerned with making other people happy before she thought of herself. The three women whom Tom encircled had all grown up in homes where alcohol caused problems that made children walk softly and try at great lengths to please and to appease. Had Tom known that, or had he just accidentally homed in on women who would sacrifice themselves to make him happy? When young Anne-Marie met Tom in April of 1993, she was flattered by the attention and very eager to have someone of Tom's caliber befriend her, offer her advice, and mentor her. It did not seem that Anne-Marie at first considered this relationship romantic in the slightest. There was no indication that she thought this was moving towards a dating relationship. She did truly believe it was a platonic friendship. But just like Debbie before her, Tom very slowly sucked her in. 
I think for Henry, there was also a couple of other factors. There was the paternal thing at play. She had such a damaged relationship with her own father that she might have wanted to psychically heal it by having a healthy relationship with this older man. Tom wanted to take care of her. He paid attention to her in a way that her father never had and was incapable of. And he was also very well off and he wanted to help her in a way that he would like if something happened like her windshield broke he would pay for it she needed a tv set he would take care of it like she had always struggled with money and he was there like demanding that she take these gifts from him he was also very politically connected in the field that she was and i also think that there's just something about people pleasers and authority figure types that go hand in hand And I know this because I'm a people pleaser and I'm very attracted to authority figure types. Like Nathaniel is very like authoritative when he speaks. He has a lot of authority. Like if you guys haven't checked out the breakdown with NLW, you can see why if you're interested in crypto at all. But yeah, and luckily we have a very healthy relationship, but I can see how this would turn eventually into something more romantic on her part. Tom got Anne-Marie to open up to him to share her deepest fears, worries, and shames, all under the guise of supporting her and being there for her. But it was really so he had all the dirty dirt on her in case he wanted to use it. Yeah, and he was using it even just within himself to manipulate her however he wanted. Yeah, exactly. Ironically, what Anne-Marie would grow most ashamed about was her relationship with Tom, a married man. But she slowly slid right under his spell. By the time she turned 28 on January 27th, 1994, Anne-Marie was in love. She wrote in her diary, I have fallen in love with a very special person whose name I choose to leave anonymous. We know who each other are. It happened the night of my 28th birthday. We have built an everlasting friendship. I feel free around him. And like he says, he makes my heart smile. He deserves some happiness in his life. And it makes me feel good to know that I can provide him with such happiness. Who knows if anything serious will ever happen between the two of us. I only know what I dream. Where's Deb at this time? Deb is still like, she said at this point, he was calling her every day. They had like weekly dates at the very minimum. But way more often than that, he was a presence in her life, her kid's life. They knew him very well. So he has a wife, his own four children. He is basically like an extra parent almost to Debbie's kids and is around all the time as her primary person. And now he is dating this much younger woman. He was about, I think, 17 years older than her. And Kay and... Debbie, I think, were similarly aged, so like only a year or two younger than him at most. Wow. So the deeper that Anne-Marie fell for Tom, the greater the guilt that she felt. She could only reveal the affair to one or two close, non-judgmental friends. And even those people who were completely non-judgmental were like, you should end this relationship. Like, this is not you. This is not who you are. And you're not really happy. You shouldn't have to be ashamed and hiding any relationship that you're in. Yeah. They also did not like how Tom would try to insinuate himself into even their lives. So they like handful of friends that did know about Tom, like he would get their phone numbers. He would be like, oh, I'll take you out to lunch, too, in like a weird way to get more of 
a handle on Anne-Marie and her life and like have more people like to manipulate in case she tried to get away from him. Gross. They also noticed that he ordered for Anne-Marie at restaurants and wouldn't listen to her, would just tell her what she was going to eat. He also foisted expensive gifts upon her, gifts that she did not want but didn't know how to reject. And something she wanted but she felt guilty for accepting. Like if she mentioned that she wanted something like, oh, I really wanted this dress, but, you know, it's, it's out of my budget. He would surprise her with it. And she did want it. But then it would put her in this awkward position of owing him something. Yeah, he's buying her. Exactly. Also, it's just you could say this about any mistress, but every holiday or special occasion was misery because she could not be with the person she wanted to be. And so she would, you know, she had good friends and family, but... She was keenly aware that she had somebody in her life who was never going to be with her and she was never going to be with him and his kids, especially for any of these special events. So it's it's kind of clear in these moments where you stand in someone's life. Yeah. And she's not even second to his wife. Well, she doesn't know that. So Debbie didn't know about Anne-Marie and Anne-Marie did not know about Debbie at all. Nor did either of the women who were mistresses know about any of his other dalliances. <laughs> Everyone is different, especially when it comes to health needs and goals. And that's why Care Of is here to make it easier than ever to stick to a vitamin routine personally tailored to your everyday wellness. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. The process is really simple. You take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized doctor-backed recommendation, taking the guesswork out of what supplements are the best suited for you. I mean, that's a problem I always have as I'm standing in the vitamin aisle and I'm looking at all of these different supplements and multivitamins and there are so many different aesthetic looking ones as well now that I'm always <laughs> yes. drawn to. And I feel like this just literally took all of the guesswork out for us and also is shipped to you in such amazing, beautifully merchandised packaging. The protein. Absolutely. The supplements, the little mini packs with the sayings on them every day, which I know, I know. I've read to you before. Andy loves <laughs> the sayings. She'll like send pictures of them. And I'm like, I know. I also get these. <laughs> the saying of the day. I talked about the electrolytes last time we did this, and I just really appreciate that they're not loaded up with sugar. It's so hard to get an electrolyte powder that isn't just pure on sugar. It still tastes amazing, but I feel like I'm actually putting something good in my body. Totally. Each shipment comes with a customized pamphlet showing you exactly what is in your individual daily packs and why it was recommended specifically for you and your health goals. Care Of's free app is there to help you track your progress and how you feel. You can even earn rewards like discounts and merch when you take your vitamins daily. Care Of's daily vitamin packs are made of plant-based compostable film, so you can stress less about your impact on the environment as well. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code LOVEMURDER50. Again, to get 50% off your first Care Of order, Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code LOVEMURDER50. If Anne-Marie complained or spoke up about wanting more of his time, and there was like one occasion where he told her he was going to be at this bar around Valentine's Day with his friends. And so she was like, oh, maybe that's an invitation for me to go down there. But he was actually there with Kay and also his friends. Oh. And he 
shot her this look of death just for showing up and she felt sick to her stomach and had to leave. So after that occasion and after any occasion where she would ever speak up, he would just give her the silent treatment and he wouldn't take any of her calls. He would not talk to her. And then there was other times where he would dramatically end things with her. So if she was at all like, this is really becoming hard for me and I feel really guilty about doing this to your family. He'd be like, well, then I guess we should just end. I don't want to do this. But like, if you can't handle it, then I don't really have a choice and you're doing this to me. So let's just break it off. And then he wouldn't answer her calls. And then he'd come back to her and he'd be like, oh, like, I love you so much. I just can't stay away from you. Don't ever do that to me again. And she had been miserable. And obviously this is a psychological tactic. Yes. Yeah. Sad and desperate. So then all of a sudden, anything that she had been asking for or just commenting on how she was feeling was gone and she would not bring up those concerns ever again because she didn't want to go through that again. Yeah, so fucked up. It's super screwed up. So after one of these occasions, she wrote in her diary, my life doesn't exist without Thomas. Oh God. He deserves happiness. He doesn't deserve to be miserable. I'll wait forever. Oh. So she's obviously like not even like meeting other guys who are available and single. No, yeah, she really wasn't. We're going to get into... Somebody she does end up dating later on. But I think that there was only one other person fairly early on in her relationship with Tom that she kind of dated. But it wasn't more than a handful of dates, I believe. And Debbie's situation was really screwed up because he knew he had her fully, fully under his control. And I think once he knew he had Debbie, it wasn't enough For him just to know that she was sitting around waiting for him, he wanted to push that control so he would make her go out and sleep with men and then tell him about it. Whoa. That's a whole different level. There was one occasion where they ended up like going out golfing with a colleague of his and end up drinking and like hanging out together and he like took her in another room and had sex with her and then made her give a blowjob to this other guy. And they were both like really uncomfortable, both Debbie and the other guy. And he was like, this is weird. I'm going to go. But he wasn't enough that he knew he had her completely. He had to show off that he had her so completely that he could even make her do things that she didn't want to do. Yeah, it was complete control. (laughs) Yeah, but she hung in there. And she really did believe that someday he was going to be with her, as did it seem like Anne-Marie thought. Well, the wait shockingly did come to an end. Tom left his wife of 23 years in the fall of 1995. No way. Yep. And I don't know the details. As it's portrayed in the Anne Rule book, he just walked out, essentially, got his own apartment, just moved out. I don't know the ins and outs of how that all went down. Now, of course, he told Debbie that he did it for her. I mean, if he's, like, flagrantly going golfing with his mistress and stuff, people had to be talking. Yeah, I think that this was maybe just going to come to an end anyway. And because we don't have Kay's side of the story, it's possible she found out something. Yeah, and was like, get the fuck out. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So Debbie, when she found out that he was leaving Kay, was completely overjoyed. She believed that after, I think they had been together for... 15 years or pushing 15 years at this point. Jesus, that's crazy. So she thought they were going to be able to like legitimately be together, be out in the open together, maybe even get married. And she had never in all those years, never seriously dated or 
obviously gotten remarried because she was so in love with Tom. Now, Anne-Marie, surprisingly, or not surprisingly if you knew her, was the opposite of thrilled. As a Catholic, she was devastated to have been a major adulterous factor in the collapse of a long-term marriage. So it kind of hit her differently when he's like, when I left my whole family for you, she had expected to feel excited, but all she felt was a terrible guilt and dread thinking about his wife, thinking about his children, and thinking that she had a big part to do with the fact that now this family was broken up in her opinion. But there was like more than that, I think. I think that as the months had gone by, she had begun to chafe under Tom's controlling ways. Well, Debbie had been groomed for years and was definitely just not questioning anything at this point anymore. Anne-Marie was young and she was vibrant and she's smart. Not to say Debbie wasn't smart. Debbie was a smart woman as well. But she was picking up on the signs that this wasn't a healthy relationship. So he would call her constantly. He began emailing her multiple times a day. If she told him that she was going somewhere, he would check up on her either by calling her friend's house or by showing up where she was. He started to make surprise uninvited visits to her house under the ruse of bringing her food or bringing her presents. But obviously he was trying to see if there was anyone with her. He basically wanted to know where she was and what she was doing all day long. Now he has officially left his wife. He's living somewhere else. He's got more time on his hands and he is all over Anne-Marie and her business. Tom even tried to get her to leave her job with the governor's office and instead go work for his brother, Louis, who had taken over the family construction business. What would she do there? Well, she was doing scheduling work for the governor. She was like the primary person who ran his entire calendar. Yeah, but she's in politics. Yeah, and she wanted to stay there. But basically when she told Tom like she couldn't get together because she was so busy or she didn't really want to meet up that night because she was stressed and she just needed to get some rest. He was like, well, you're working too much and you're so stressed all the time and you're not even making that much money. Louis could pay you more and he'll give you a nice job and he'll do this for you and stuff. And she was like, no, I want to work for Governor Carper. I'm allowed to feel stressed but still enjoy my job. And really it was that he would be isolating her. He'd be putting her in a position where he, through his brother, controlled her even more. Yeah, 100%. Controlled her ability to make a paycheck. So she did fight him on that. She stayed working for the governor's office. And also, again, he's left his wife at this point. So he tried to insinuate himself with more of her friends now that they're slightly more out in the open, although it never was completely because Anne-Marie wasn't comfortable with that. And when she discovered that one weekend she came in from work and one of her coworker friends was like, oh, Tom was asking about you and he was looking for you all weekend and he was calling me about it. She just exploded. She exploded to this coworker friend and she said that Tom was a possessive, controlling maniac. So she was getting very fed up with this. Anne-Marie knew in her heart that it was time to end things with Tom. He was too old, too manipulative. They did not seem to actually really like or enjoy the same things. But the people pleaser in her kept letting her get pulled back in. She is 
the type of person that apologizes all the time, is way too considerate with other people's feelings. And he was really good at playing on that guilt, on that type of personality. And like I said, forever, she had not allowed herself to have any other romantic interests. Her life was really just her job and her friends and her family. And then, of course, Tom. And so when there's a lack of, I think, a motivating factor, an interest in somebody else, it's very easy to feel like, oh, you know, I am kind of lonely tonight and he wants to take me out to this nice dinner. It's like it's that or sitting alone. And it's easy to get sucked back in. But that all began to change in September of 1995 when her boss, the governor, assumed she was single because obviously she wasn't really dating Tom outright. And he set her up with a 30-year-old senior executive vice president of a massive Delaware-based credit card company. Amazing. His name was Mike Scanlon, and he was a dreamboat. He was everything that Anne-Marie had been looking for. He was a smart Georgetown grad who was dedicated to philanthropy, and he had a similar background to Anne-Marie. He, too, was Irish Catholic, and he had a lot of siblings as well. He was one of seven kids. Oh She's my God. one of six. At 6'2", he was taller than 5'10", Anne-Marie, and I know, like, our tall friends out there can to let us know it's hard to find a man who's taller than you when you're 5'10". Yeah, that (laughs) clicks all the boxes. Exactly. This was definitely the whole package. He got along with her family, her friends, her boss. I mean, her boss is the one who set them up. Yeah, that's so awesome. He actually like thought about who she is and what she would like. Yeah, and found the perfect guy. He was ambitious and, hey, He's single. He's actually single. He's not bringing a wife and four kids into this equation. And of course, he fell for smart, funny Anne-Marie as well. This was a real chance at lasting happiness for her. She had always dreamed of getting married and having a bunch of kids. Anne-Marie totally loved kids. And Mike wanted the same thing. They weren't jumping into anything. They weren't going crazy. But they were very open and communicative with each other. And they knew that they wanted to eventually be on that path. And that's where this relationship absolutely could be going. They spent Thanksgiving and Christmas together that year. And Anne-Marie distanced herself from Tom Capano, but he kept up with the phone calls and the emails telling Anne-Marie that they could be friends. They could just go back to being platonic friends. He just had to have her in his life. And of course, every time she gave him an inch, he'd push the buttons. He would prove that friendship was just not possible. He would demean Mike because Anne-Marie was straight up told him, no, I don't want this anymore. And I'm seeing somebody else, somebody I could have a real future with. And he would call him a nerd. He would say he was bad for her. He ended up taking back the TV he gave her as well as some of the clothes that he had bought her saying he did not want another man watching his TV, seeing her in his clothes. Huh. Yep. Worst of all, he threatened to tell Mike her dirty little secrets. Wow. She had not revealed to Mike as it's a new relationship and an eating disorder is a very personal thing. He threatened to reveal to Mike that she had an eating disorder. And that is something that she did eventually tell him and he handled it extremely well. He was very supportive and caring with her. That's disgusting that he's threatening that. Oh, even worse was that he would float the idea in a threatening way that maybe he would call Mike and tell him that he had been with Anne-Marie sexually when he was married. 
that looks bad for him. It looks bad for him, but I think he knew that Anne-Marie had always struggled with feeling worthy. And I guess she had had some conversation with Mike about how infidelity is terrible. And from his perspective, he's like talking to his new girlfriend about how he would never cheat on her. And she's just hearing if he knew that I slept with a married man, he would dump me. He would think I was disgusting. So that was the biggest thing that she just did not want him to know because she was so ashamed of what she did. And her friends did try to counsel her through it. They just said, like, it's in the Bible. It's about how you don't step out on your marriage and you weren't the one married. And, you know, like, obviously don't sleep with married anyone's, everyone, unless there's a lot of, like, consent and (laughs) polyamory or some sort of, like, open situation that you've talked to the other partner. So like, yes, I'm not saying that she's absolved of all the guilt in this situation, but I think clearly through this telling of this story, you can see how she got pulled in. Yeah. And she's not the one like holding it over his head and threatening him with it. And he was the one who was married and had children. So I think that there was a feeling of Yes, not wanting to have things end very badly with Tom because she did care for him, but also essentially managing a ticking time bomb, being afraid if she pulled her friendship or relationship from him too far, he would go off and tell Mike her worst secret. Another bad thing that happened was that her like longtime psychologist passed away <laughs> while she was seeing him. And it's like a whole other story about how like if he hadn't switched an appointment or something and had actually seen her and la la la, like he wouldn't have been in this car accident. And so she did find a new, I think it was a psychologist, but her new psychologist was working with her on setting boundaries and asserting herself, especially when it came to Tom. So through this therapy, Anne-Marie decided that she was going to take slow steps to extinguish the relationship. Rather than having some big confrontation with him, she would first stop by not seeing him in person. Then she would stop taking his calls, but she would continue to email him. And then she would just slowly put more time in between how fast she replied. Yep. And so it was just like little by little, she's breadcrumbing, but in a way that's healthy and she thinks can manage the situation better. Yeah. When Anne-Marie's 30th birthday fell on the night of one of the biggest social events in Wilmington, the Grand Gala Ball, she was delighted when Mike asked her to go. This was like apparently a big deal. She got a fancy dress. It was just a magical moment. She was only worried that Tom was going to also come to this gala and ruin it for her. To the point where she had one of her friends look to see if he was on the guest list. And then when she was leaving to go or even maybe from the gala, she might have called from a payphone. She called his house and then hung up when he answered just to make sure that he was at home and not there. This is how worried she was. But she had good reason to be because she's having a great time. Now she's her guards down because she doesn't think he's going to be there. And when she went to the ladies room without Mike, he came out of nowhere and grabbed her by the arm. What? And tried to, like, push her into this little, like, side powder room area to talk with her. And she was really tired of it at this point. So she said, nope, get off me. She ripped her arm out of his arms. She said, you're not going to ruin 
this for me. I want you to leave. But this would set off a chain of reactions, this public rejection of not taking even the time to talk to him, just shaking him off in a way that, I mean, the reason why I brought up all those quotes before was that you can see that this is a man who is not used to rejection. No. And he's not handling it very well. This ends up becoming a slow motion disaster. Tom was losing control of Anne-Marie and he was willing to do anything to regain it. Even at this point, though, he was still seeing Debbie, still saying I love you, also still torturing his ex-wife. He would just show up to the house they used to share while she was entertaining guests and just show up and then put his feet on the table and say, babe, will you just rub my feet for me? What? Yeah, she's like, we're divorced. Please leave. And he's like, I paid for this house. So he's still screwing with his ex-wife. He's telling Debbie they have a future together. There were two other women he was also seeing or sexually harassing, because I think one of them worked for him, basically, at this point as well. But even though he had all of this other stuff going on, it did not matter because it wasn't about him having love in his life. It wasn't about sex even. It was about control. And she was saying, I'm leaving you. And he decided that no one was going to leave him. Anne-Marie did manage to cut him off for a little while after this event happened. And she actually went all of March and most of April without speaking to Tom. But then he played on her empathy and snuck back into her life by claiming his daughter had a brain tumor and was having brain surgery and he claiming? needed a shoulder. Oh, yeah, that wasn't true. Wow. Yeah, and like good liars do, he had used an occasion that there was some version of this story that had happened in his life so he could muster up the acting skills. Apparently, when one of his children was 15 months old, she had had to have a cyst removed from her skull, but the cyst was benign. It was not cancerous. Oh, my God. So he had basically recycled the emotions of that feeling and channeled it into my teenage daughter has a brain tumor. She's going into brain surgery. No one knows if she'll survive. So, of course, Anne-Marie is a very compassionate young woman. She agreed to be there for him and did not know that it was a complete lie because it made sense because he would say stuff like, come with me to the hospital, be with me, because he knew that she would say, no, that's not my place. That's Kay's place. That would be inappropriate of me to do, but I will be there for you afterwards or we can meet up and we can talk afterwards. So now she is fully pulled back in. Now there's nothing sexual going on with them at this point because she is with Mike, but she is still allowing him to be a presence in her life. Yeah. By early June, Anne-Marie acknowledged to a friend that Tom was a full-on stalker that she could not shake. He was still like driving outside of her house calling her at all hours of the night. And that friend was like, you should report him to the police. But she really wanted to try to handle it on her own. I think, again, she didn't want that relationship to be revealed. Okay. Her family did not know about this. And I don't think she wanted her older siblings or Mike Scanlon to know that they had had any sort of sexual relationship. Because even though nothing in this is her fault, of course, the first question would be like, well, why is this guy so obsessed with you? What kind of relationship did you have? And so she'd have to admit what happened. So she was determined to handle it on her own. She decided at this point that this 
only emailing thing was not working. She had to be assertive. She had to leave no room for doubt. And just as she was making that decision, Tom was deciding that he wanted Anne-Marie. She now was like had been running away from him for months. She had chosen another man over him. And now that made her the most desirable. He was going to win her back at all costs. He apparently discovered, because again, he was creeping on her friends and checking up with them, that Anne-Marie had wanted this very expensive pantsuit. And he ended up hatching this plan to give her like the best night of her life. He was going to take her to this expensive restaurant in Philadelphia, give her this expensive pantsuit. He was going to really make a case for why they should be together, why she should get rid of Mike, because they had the drive to Philadelphia. They had the drive back. There was just going to be a lot of time where she was stuck with him. And no one really knows why Anne-Marie accepted the invitation to go out with Tom on Thursday, June 27th, 1996. But based on interviews with her friends, her therapist, as well as diary entries and emails between the two that were exchanged that came to light later, my belief, my speculation is that she was going to have this one last goodbye dinner with him and try to very gently but firmly tell him she no longer wanted to be in contact because it wasn't healthy for either of them. That is what I think her goals with this dinner were, but we will never know for sure what she intended because after that evening, no one ever saw Anne-Marie Fahey ever again. Insane. This is the most, like, crazy situation. It's just unbelievably frustrating. Red flag disclaimer for all women. <laughs> just red flag after red flag after red flag. And I think that's why so many people recommended it to yeah. us. Yeah, It's, like, very our cases to a T. Yes. And it's important that we point out all of these red flags. So hopefully if you're realizing any of these in your relationships, you can take a good look <laughs> at what's happening to you because it's such a slippery slope and it happens to successful, beautiful, smart women and men all of the time. Yeah. I mean, this probably goes without saying, but like, I know she would have had like her inner tumult of feeling guilty about the fact that she was having an affair with a married man, but it probably would have been in her best interest to have involved any other authority figure with what was going on in regards to the stalking, harassment, any of that so that they had it on record. I just wish that we lived in a time where like we could like not be worried about reporting something like this and having to like deal with the shame and someone could just actually like want to help you. Well, abusers used that shame. He knew she was ashamed. He had nothing to worry about. I mean, this man has no shame. He knew she was too ashamed to report him or to come forward or to even tell people she was exceptionally close to, like her family and her boyfriend about it. And it's the same way people who sexually abuse children use shame as a component to keep them silent. So horrifying. It is. And so at first they went out on Thursday evening and it wasn't really until Saturday, June 29th, that people became very worried. Of course, she had missed some phone calls, but she had been off of work on Friday so it wasn't like she had failed to show up. Was he back? Yeah. He's got a whole story. We'll get into it. He's back. He's got no problems in the world. At least he's acting like he has none. But when Anne-Marie stood up dinner with her brother, sister-in-law, and Mike, the entire Fahey family and her boyfriend were extremely concerned. 
Kathleen, Anne Marie's sister, and Mike got Anne Marie's landlady to let them into her apartment where they found her purse and wallet. Her car was also parked outside. There was a box from Talbot's containing the very expensive pantsuit that Kathleen knew she had wanted but could not afford. Her keys were also in the home, and it was very weird. There was a bunch of food on the counter, including some takeout from the Panorama restaurant in Philadelphia, and the garbage can was also full of decaying, rotting food, which was very unlike anal Annie. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, Mike said it was to the point where she did not leave garbage in her house. It was like the type of person who would like put it in more like a shopping bag size and take it out every time she left the house. Yeah, yeah. She was unbelievably clean. To the point where they were having a very hard time lifting any DNA from her own apartment later on because she didn't have a stray hair or anything because she was so clean. Obviously, at that point, they're like, this is very weird. Maybe it wouldn't be weird for somebody else, but this is extremely not like Annie because that's what they called her. But also just in general, like nobody's heard from her in a couple of days, but all of her stuff is in the house and she's not there. Where is she without her car, her keys, her wallet? Where is she? So at 12.15 in the morning, they called and reported Anne-Marie missing. The Fahey family had long been connected with another like Irish family that they had been acquainted with. And the patriarch of that family was actually the Secretary of State of Delaware. So they called him because he was an old family friend to get political pressure on the investigation. Obviously, they also had the help of her boss, the governor, to make sure that it was immediately very thoroughly investigated. And when the ball got rolling, it really got rolling. I mean, she is a beautiful 30-year-old woman who worked for the governor. There was no way that this wasn't going to get a lot of attention. So Mike was obviously vetted as a suspect, but he was very thoroughly alibied and very earnest and forthright. So they were able to rule him out pretty soon after Anne-Marie disappeared. Anne-Marie's apartment did not appear to have been the scene of any crime or foul play, but they were able to recover her diary. They also combed through her emails, bank accounts, and began to interview her friends and coworkers. Once they analyzed all of that information, they knew that the last time anyone had seen Anne-Marie alive had been with Tom Capano that Thursday evening. They had emailed about meeting up to go to this restaurant. They also knew, because they had her diary and these emails, that Anne-Marie had had a romantic relationship with Tom and that she had been desperately trying to disentangle herself from him because they'd also talked to her therapist or psychologist. So Tom was immediately under suspicion. And so much so that when they showed up basically in the middle of the night to interview him, he was like, oh, I was expecting you. Somebody told me that Anne-Marie was missing but he did not seem very concerned. He said that he and Anne-Marie had gone to Philadelphia where they had a pleasant dinner. Afterwards, they came back to Wilmington. They stopped at his house very briefly so he could give her some food that he had bought for her. What? Yeah, like non-perishables and some fruit or something, which he would tell people that 
because he was aware of her anorexia, he was always trying to get her to eat healthy foods and providing her with foods because he was such a great guy. I can't. Yeah. So they stopped very briefly at his house so he could get some food. And then they went on to her apartment. He said that they both started up the stairs. Then she ended up going up by herself because he had to return downstairs and get the gift that he had given her that night that she had forgotten and left in his car, which is very convenient if somebody saw him alone going into her apartment that he's saying, oh, she was ahead of me. So if anyone randomly saw me, it was because uh, I had to get this gift and bring it back to her. He said that it was a very hot night. And so he checked her air conditioner to make sure it was working. And then he left her place getting back to his own home around 10 p.m. He said that he had not spoken to her since, but he was not surprised or alarmed because Anne-Marie was, quote, very airheaded and unpredictable. Oh, my God. Two words that you have not even glazed on with her. Absolutely not. He was just trying to make her appear flighty like somebody who would just take off. Well, the server at the restaurant who had waited on them said the meal was anything but pleasant. In fact, it had been awkward, angry, weirdly quiet at some parts, and she had been quite sure that the couple was having a big fight. And it was just the type of thing where they're fighting and then, you know, you've been in this situation. As a server, you walk over and they get very, like, weirdly quiet, quiet. and, like, yep. tightly polite. I'm so glad they interviewed the server. Yep. And they said that Anne-Marie, like, barely touched her food. She seemed especially upset by whatever was going on and what was being said. As the police followed down leads, Anne-Marie's disappearance made headlines. Within a week of the disappearance, President Clinton called Governor Carper to offer his sympathy to the Fahey family. He also offered up something else, the FBI, to aid in the investigation. Fuck yeah. Yeah. The FBI got a warrant for Tom's house and vehicles, and they found a few suspicious things. One, he had quite a collection of bleaches and cleaning agents that appeared very recently purchased. And especially his great room, I guess it's like a living room, had been scrubbed to a T. Two, it appeared that Tom had gotten rid of his couch and carpet that had been in that room previously and replaced them since that night. They also found a few small spots of blood in his laundry room. Guilty. Which, <laughs> I mean, guilty like years ago, but guilty. Yeah. I do actually quite like it when you prematurely declare while I'm still explaining the investigation. Guilty. <laughs> Life in prison without possibility of parole. <laughs> I like that. I like that's a good prediction. So they were able to send that to the crime lab to extract some DNA to see if it was Anne Marie's. But like I said, they actually had a very hard time finding samples because she was so clean. Employees of Louis Capano's construction business came forward to say that they had been told to empty a couple of dumpsters prematurely. They said it was basically not the normal time. It wasn't all of the dumpsters owned by the company, but just two specific ones, and that those dumpsters were barely half full. When they asked why they were supposed to do this because it wasn't the appropriate time to do this. They were told to not talk about it over the phone, not ask questions, and just do it. The police searched the landfill where those dumpsters had been brought, but there was no sign of human remains at all. 
And though they wanted to look for the missing couch and carpet, apparently this type of landfill has a bulldozer with spikes run over all the garbage until it's just all mushed together Uh. terrifically. There's just no way to isolate this couch and carpet that they were looking for. So it was kind of a wild garbage hunt right there. But good that, I mean, they're being thorough. They're being very thorough. They had very little else to go on at this point. So it was a very big deal when the DNA results came back. The blood flecks in Tom's house had indeed come from Anne-Marie Fahey. Yep. So that's a win, but they have no body, no murder weapon, no witnesses, and suspicions, but they have no idea how he did it, though they obviously suspect it was in his house on that couch that he got rid of. Yeah, I honestly, like, feel like that should be enough to prosecute someone. Well, I mean, we talked about this with no body cases that actually they end up successful for the prosecution more often than not to a surprising degree. And they definitely really wanted to hammer this guy. If he thought he was, like, at all politically connected, he was... sadly mistaken like president clinton and the governor like we're gonna get to the bottom of this send in the fbi i don't think you're like little leagues and boards and committees are gonna save you here buddy so the authorities strongly believed though that at least two of tom's brothers knew more than they were saying shit really yeah well louis obviously because of the dumpster thing that instruction had come from louis capano So scary. So they thought definitely he knew something. And then there was Jerry. Jerry was Tom's youngest brother. And they were looking at Jerry because Jerry was kind of sketchy anyway. He was the black sheep of the family. He had had some run-ins for drugs. He hung out with a really bad crowd, a lot of ex-convicts. He had been in rehab before, I believe. So he was kind of the troubled Capano brother. The rest of the family had been very, very successful. So he was the troubled one. And when they looked at what Tom said he did over that weekend after seeing Anne-Marie, there was a lot of occasions where he used Jerry as an alibi. So they're like, "Mm mm-hmm, I don't think you were really with him this whole time. And Jerry had a boat. So they're now thinking he had to get rid of her body somehow if it wasn't in the dumpster, because the guys who did toss the stuff in the dumpster said there was not a body in there. We would have known if there was a body in there. There's just a bunch of random stuff. So they're now thinking, let's put some pressure on Jerry. He is the weakest link. He's been in trouble with the law before. He's the one that we can put some pressure on. And they were able to, because of he had some past indiscretions, get the ATF to raid his house to come up with some reason to hold him so they can put the screws to him. And they ended up finding cocaine, marijuana, and a whole pile of guns. They also discovered that Jerry had bought guns for one of his friends who was an ex-con. And so legally he was not allowed to own guns, but also you can't buy guns for other people. But so they also were like, okay, good. We have something we can hold him for now. Under the threat of criminal proceedings and I believe a a big portion of guilt, I believe Jerry decided to make a deal with the authorities. In exchange for three years of probation, Jerry told the FBI a shocking story. 
He said that around February of 1996, so before, way before her June disappearance, Tom had told him that a couple was trying to extort him and that they were threatening to potentially hurt his family. He needed to borrow $8,000 and a gun from Jerry. However, Tom did eventually return that gun unfired, and he still had it. Okay. He did say if this couple tried to hurt his daughters, he'd have to kill them, and then he would need to use Jerry's boat to get rid of the evidence. Jerry did not think he was serious. He didn't think this was actually going to happen, and he didn't think Tom was somebody that would just ice a couple. Until 6 a.m. on June 28th when Tom called him and told him he needed the boat. No way he comes clean with all of this shit? He comes totally clean. Now, Jerry said he did not want to know details. But he said, was it the couple? Did you do it? And Tom said yes. And then they did not talk about what was happening or what they were getting rid of. Jerry said he did not want to know. So he ended up going to pick up Tom. He also saw when he was picking up Tom that there was a rolled up rug near him. But they didn't take the rug, it seems like. But they did take a very, very, very large and heavy cooler that was wrapped with a chain. Um, how large? 162 quarts. A glue cooler. So the two brothers loaded the cooler up. When they got to Jerry's boat, they took it out. They drove about 70 to 75 miles away from the shore. And they did heave the cooler into the water, but it would not sink. So Jerry tried to shoot it with some type of gun or harpoon or something that he would use for sharks. And it still didn't sink. So they had to pull the boat beside the cooler and Jerry felt sick. He didn't want to see what's going on. So he actually turned around and he said that Tom had opened up the cooler and whatever was inside just, I don't know if he wrapped it in the chains that had been around the cooler or what, just let whatever was inside go. And he said that when he did turn back to see what was going on, he did see a human foot sinking into the deep water. <sighs> yeah, and he said that Tom was throwing up while he was taking whatever out of the cooler into the water. So he said that after that, they pulled the rest of the cooler apart, and as they drove back to shore, just dropped little bits of it into the water. Jerry also helped Tom move a blood-stained couch into the dumpster at Louis's company. I think that they cut the bloodstain out and got rid of it somewhere separately. The police were able to confirm that Tom had previously purchased an igloo 162-quart marine cooler, and he had put it on his credit card. When did he purchase it? He had purchased it actually, I think, in late April. So, so this is like a six-month planning premeditation. Yeah, because in February, he asked for the gun and created this backstory. Then at the end of April, he bought the cooler. And then he struck at the end of June when she tried to firmly leave him. I mean, thank goodness for Jerry coming clean with all this to the investigators. This was also 
it really divided the Capano family. Of course. Because there was a lot of people that felt like he should have just kept his mouth shut, actually, which is really screwed up. Yeah, like the people who had put Tom on a pedestal in high school. I would have been embarrassed, too. (laughs) That's true. But he wasn't the only brother talking. So Louis was on Jerry's side because they had obviously talked and been like, hey, we got pulled into this. This is screwed up. And Jerry was like especially a mess. Like he was maybe going to lose his family. He was a little bit suicidal, I think. I think he felt a ton of guilt about this. And Louis was like, look, I got pulled into this too. And I'm going to back you up, bro. I'm going to tell them everything I know about it too. And Louis was a little bit more assertive with his older brother. And he had asked a few more questions. So, well, he didn't know exactly what was going on. He told Louis something just slightly closer to the truth, although it still was a lie. Louis told the police, quote, he told me that he had a relationship with Anne-Marie Fahey and that she was anorexic and bulimic and a troubled person, that he had stopped seeing her and he didn't want his wife Kay to find out about their relationship. He also told me that after he had dinner with her that evening, they went back to his house. While he was upstairs using the bathroom, when he came down, she had slit her wrist and had gotten blood, a superficial amount of blood, on the sofa. So Tom had told him that he and Jerry had gotten rid of the sofa in the company's dumpster on the specific road, and he asked Louis to have it dumped. And Louis said, well, after this conversation with my brother, I went up to the job. We had men working and I was curious and I looked in the dumpster behind the building and I saw what looked like to be a sofa turned upside down and he just saw the legs. And so he forgot to get them dumped like after he checked it out. So Tom called him again and made sure. And that's when he called his workers and made sure that they dumped it. And he began getting concerned when he spoke to his brother and also started seeing like the news reports about Henri Fahey's disappearance and everything. But he did initially believe his brother. Tom had also told Louis that he had disposed of the carpet, some personal effects of Anne Marie's, as well as a gun in another dumpster. And that was the second dumpster that had been emptied. He claimed that it was Anne Marie's gun that he had gotten rid of. With that information, the police were able to arrest Thomas Capano for the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey, which they did on November 12th, 1997. They also suspected that Anne-Marie had actually died of a gunshot wound to the head based on where the bloodstains had been on the couch. Like they had been kind of like where your head would be lying. Okay. According to Jerry's recollection and because Louis had reported that Tom had also disposed of a gun. Yeah. So now they're like, okay, we think we're putting the pieces together about how he did this and with what type of murder weapon. So they ended up pulling all of the registered weapons of everyone who was close to Tom and seeing who had one that could not be accounted for because it was disposed of. And they found one gun that could not be produced. It did not belong to Louis. It did not belong to Jerry. It did not belong to any of the Capano brothers or his other friends or family. It belonged to someone else who had long been loyal or perhaps the word is brainwashed. It was registered to Deb. Wow. He is just dragging everyone into this. Everyone who's been loyal to him, who has tried to love him. He is bringing them down right with him. 
Now, we do know from Debbie because she did participate in the Anne Rule book. And Anne Rule seemed to really like her. I read one criticism that she absolves Debbie of a lot of these sins. But Anne Rule seems to have a handle on how brainwashed she was over these years. Well, I also don't think Anne Rule is like God. She's not the yeah, one absolving yeah. her of sins. You know what I mean, guys? Like, come on. Yeah, she's telling Debbie's side of the story here. Debbie's truth. Yeah. This is Debbie's truth. And so she told Anne Rule that she was blindsided when Tom told her that he had been dating the missing 30-year-old Anne-Marie Fahey for over two years. Because, again, this was big in the media. So she had to swallow that news because obviously he hadn't told her that he was dating somebody that he thought he was in love with for two years while he was telling her that they were working towards marriage. But... She did believe him when he told her that he had absolutely nothing to do with Anne-Marie's disappearance. In early spring of 1996, so again, this is all going down between February and late April of 96, Tom had asked Debbie to buy a gun for him. He had told her a similar extortion story to what he had told Jerry, and he coerced her into buying a Beretta 22 for him. And honestly, she got turned away from the first place she tried to buy a gun from because she explained that it wasn't for her. It was for her friend. And they were like, well, that's a legal lady. So you got to go tell your friend to come in here, buy his own gun. Yeah. So she went home and she was like, I can't do it, Tommy, because it's illegal. And he's like, who fucking cares? Go back to another place. Just pretend it's yours. And she said that she was so scared of losing him that she did it. She said, I was afraid Tom would get mad if I did not do what he wanted me to do. I was always afraid he would get so angry that he would leave me. So she gave him the gun. She said that she put it out of her mind. She did not think of it again until Anne-Marie went missing. Initially, Debbie was asked about where she was and if she was with Tom and what their relationship was. So she had asked a bunch of stuff, but she was not initially asked about her gun in the very early investigation. Well, they didn't know about the gun in the early investigation. They didn't. Yeah. So she didn't lie immediately. But when they came back to ask her about her gun and she couldn't produce it, she had already been coached by Tom as to what she was supposed to say. She certainly wasn't supposed to tell the authorities that she bought it for him and she didn't know where it was. So she told them the story that Tom had concocted for her that her son, who I believe was a teenager at the time, She was worried about him and his friends getting into it and there had been some incident and so she was concerned and she had bought the gun to protect herself because there was a burglary in the area. But when she saw that her son could get into it or there could be something fatal that could occur, she took the gun apart and threw it in the trash. So she said, I don't know where it is now. I threw it in the trash. And of course, investigators, when they're interrogating people say things that are not true so they said so why do we have the gun with tom's fingerprints on it if he never touched it and he was never around your gun and she was trying to think fast so she was like well maybe he took it out of the trash i don't know he was at my house sometimes if you have it with his fingerprints i can't tell you but maybe he when i wasn't looking maybe i don't know because she was just trying to figure out how to stay on the story that he had given her I mean, that's a lot faster. I would have just been like, Like, (laughs) there's no way I could have thought. You know how I am with authority figures. They would have been like asking, they're like, what's your name? I gave him the gun. (laughs) (laughs) Ma'am, can you spell your last name? I gave him the gun. He definitely did it. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So afterwards, she was sick to her stomach. She was panicky because she knew that he wasn't going to be happy 
Yeah, well, she's lucky that she's blessed with the fear that he's going to leave and not the fear that he's going to murder her, like Anne-Marie. Don't worry, we're going to get there with Debbie. She was scared of him. She's now scared because if she continues lying, she could possibly be prosecuted as well. And that she might be in love with a murderer. (laughs) And there's that. So she was realizing now exactly how terrified she was. And also he had set her up with an attorney that he had picked that was sticking to his story. And she had ended up talking to her ex-husband, who was also an attorney. And her ex-husband was like, get rid of this guy. Get yourself a real criminal defense attorney and stop cooperating with Tom's camp. Because she was writing letters. Also, guys, I really wanted to include his jailhouse letters to Debbie, but they were disgusting. Like, pornographic disgusting like saying like I'm writing this letter to you and I hope that you're on all fours with your date's dick in you and stuff Ew. I know it was not romantic it was not like sweet nothings and like I'm so glad well she said also though that he did send her letters that were more of the romantic you're the only one who's standing by me and after I get over this like we're gonna finally get married but like the one I read in Anne Rule's book was so gross that I didn't even want to repeat it At length, because I just gave you a snippet. It was like he went into details. It was gross. (laughs) It was gross. So she dumped her attorney and she hired this attorney that Tom apparently did not like and did not want representing her. So she is now going against his wishes. And he had an upcoming bail hearing and she was supposed to testify on his behalf. He and his attorneys had kind of coached her as to what she was supposed to say at this bail hearing. And I guess some people said she got a new attorney. I don't think she's going to be helping you anymore. He had heard whisperings or something. I don't know from who. And he was like, that was not true. He said, no way. Debbie has been with me for over 15 years. She's not going to turn her back on me. And then he went to the bail hearing and she did not show up. Mm. He was irate. Once again, a woman had defied him. And this is a woman that had been under his thumb for almost two decades. What are you going to do, Tom? Murder her? He might try. What did narcissists love to do behind bars? Seriously. (laughs) Always. They always, always try to exert control from inside prison. And sadly for them, they're not the mafia. So he thought that this woman was completely under his thumb, that she was willing to lie for him on the stand, that this was his ticket to freedom because she would do anything he said. And Tom wanted revenge on her. He first asked a fellow inmate who was about to get out to burgle her home. Oh. Yep. And by the way, her kids still live at home. So there's no security around the fact that he would do this when the children were not home. And he wanted the robber to take certain things, specifically a painting as well as going into where she hid her sex toys and take the sex toys because... He wanted her to know it was him. Like a message, yeah. It's a message that says, I can get to you, even from jail, because this happened to you. This violating incident happened to you, and you know it's me because they took our sex toys and some painting that was meaningful to them somehow. So that naturally failed when the inmate went straight to the authorities with the hand-drawn map that Tom had created that was 100% in his handwriting and showed aspects of Debbie's house and possessions that only he and she would know about. Mm. Seeing as Debbie didn't smuggle Tom's handwriting, a map of her own house into the jail to give to this inmate, definitely came from him. 
At this point, though, the prosecution wanted to gather more evidence because they bet that if he had tried to pull this shit, that he had maybe talked to other inmates about other potential jobs he wanted done. And they did find another, I'm not sure if it was a cellmate, but someone close to him on the inside. And he had tried to convince this man to kill prosecutor Calm Connolly for him, who was prosecuting the case. So, of course, that dude was like, yeah, no, I'm not assassinating a federal prosecutor. You've got to be out of your mind. So then Tom lobbied instead to have two other people killed, his own brother, Jerry, and, of course, the loyal mistress who had betrayed him in the end. Unbelievable. Debbie was presented with evidence that the man that she would have waited for for the rest of her life, who she had perjured herself for, who she was willing to lay down her own freedoms for, had tried to have her home ransacked, and then also ordered her to be killed. It was only then that she realized she had been absolutely wrong about Tom Capano all along since the beginning, and Debbie was like, screw this, I'm testifying against him. Great. You got what you want from me. Thusly, in August of 1998, Tom had a couple more charges added to his docket. He had three counts of criminal solicitation, one for the burglary and two for the murders. Tom's trial began in late October of 1998 and lasted a whopping 12 weeks. Wow. That's a long trial. The prosecution contended that controlling Tom Capano could not let the beautiful young Anne-Marie walk away from him, could not bear to have him choose another man over him. That when she had fully managed to extricate herself from him and tell him that it was well and truly over, that he had coerced her to come to his house after that dinner, either by force or manipulation. And then while she was sitting on the couch, he had shot her in the head using a gun that he had made his other lover purchase Mm -hmm. for him for this exact reason. Unbelievable. They had the testimony of Debbie, Louie, and Jerry, as well as the ex-cons that he had tried to hire to burglarize and kill for him. They presented the credit card charge for the cooler, the disappearing couch and rug, as well as the drops of Anne-Marie's blood that had been found in his home. They also had the testimony of Anne-Marie's friends and her psychologist, as well as her own words when she wrote in her diary that Tom was, quote, a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. Oh, my God. This, Andy, blew my mind. Are you ready for Tom's defense? Oh, my God, I can't wait. Tom claimed that, well, yes, Anne-Marie had died in his house. And, well, yes, he had disposed of her body with his brother that he was not, in fact, the person who had killed Anne-Marie. Tom was only guilty of love, loyalty, and cowardice. He's blaming Deb, right? Because it was Debbie McIntyre who had killed Anne-Marie Fahey. Was she just shocked, or did she know that this was coming? Stunned. I think she thought maybe we had reached rock bottom at him trying to get her murdered, but no. We clawed through that basement. We went right (laughs) down to the core of the earth here. (sighs) Tom claimed that Debbie had burst into his house in a jealous rage with the gun that she had bought. He's like, it's her gun, not mine. In hysterics, she had threatened to end her life. So basically, he said, Anne-Marie and he were watching a television show. They were watching L.A. Law, I believe. And she was laying on the couch. He was in the chair. 
Deb has a key to his house. So she snuck in. Then she saw them together and burst into the room. She had the gun and she was screaming. They weren't really concerned, which I think that this scenario would cause for concern, even if you knew Deb, which Anne-Marie does not. And so Anne-Marie stayed seated and then she held the gun up to her own head. He said Deb was holding the gun to her own head, essentially saying she was going to kill herself for being passed over for this younger woman after waiting so long for him. Then Tom got up and he struggled with her to make sure that Deb did not kill herself. And that was when the gun accidentally went off and happened to just exactly hit Anne-Marie in the head. And is he saying this or is his defense attorney saying this? He's saying this on the stand. He took the stand in his own defense and he said this, drivel. Drivel. (laughs) Yeah. He had disposed of the body for Debbie out of love and loyalty. That was a mistake. He should not have done that. He realizes now. Mm -hmm. This was, of course, huge news to Debbie, who did have an alibi. She would later say that much after this, Tom would try to get in touch with her again, not apologize for any of this, and tell her he loved her and he missed her. And she was like, um, okay, you cheat on me. Fine. You embroil me in a murder plot, making me buy a murder weapon. Not great. You try to get someone to rob my house when my children are potentially inside. Also, not super duper. You then try to get me killed, which is very uncool. And then you try to pin the murder of the woman you were cheating on me with on me. She's like, I think that's the last straw. I think. As if me being your mistress for 15 years in secrecy, waiting for you to leave your partner wasn't enough. And then poor thing, this is what happens after he leaves his wife. Yeah, and also this was a very famous case. Now she has to testify. She's in the newspapers. The whole community knows about this. Her kids have to know about this. This this is like cheating never pays. Why you don't have an affair. Don't Don't have have affairs. This could happen to you if you have an affair. This is just keep it in your pants or end your marriage. I mean, she did end her marriage. Just, yeah. (laughs) This is insane. So for someone that everyone had described previously as so charming, Tom was absolutely a crass, crude pig when he took the stand and discussed the women in his life. He mentioned that Debbie had tirelessly pursued him and basically forced herself on him and not the other way around. This is some of the shit he said verbatim on the stand while talking about women he had said he loved. This is what he said about Debbie. I wasn't particularly interested in fooling around with somebody who, that if I did, could easily result in the loss of my job. But he did. (laughs) Secondly, Debbie was by far not the most attractive female of the group. Um... And third, one of the things you learn playing high school football is there's a phrase beginning with BF. Now, Anne will put this in parentheses, buddy fucking. You never do that, Tom told the jury. Her husband, Dave, wasn't a friend of mine, but we worked together. And you just never fool around with a friend's lady. And Rule wrote, but of course, he had. (laughs) He did. So this guy just lost his mind, like fully lost his mind. He's fully, like, gone. He then went on to smear the woman that he had killed, saying that Anne-Marie was a mess 
who had spilled all of her dirty laundry to him that he hadn't asked her any of these questions, that she was just this hot, neurotic mess that wanted to tell her all of her problems and all of her family's dirty history. He said on the stand she was absolutely insistent about telling me about her personal background. She told me she had a very wild period in her life when she was, in her own words, promiscuous. She felt compelled to tell me that she'd been so wild, that she'd been tested for AIDS. I was expecting some deep, dark secret. Tom chuckled. Ah, what a piece of shit. Yeah, he went on like smirking to say that she had anorexia, that she had a nervous breakdown, that she had once dated a man of another race. Oh my God. So he's just disgusting at this point. Yep. He said that... He was so good at keeping her confidences, though. Tom, at that point, wrinkled his forehead trying to think of more of Anne-Marie's alleged secrets to tell the jury. He said, there are probably other confidences she shared with me, he apologized, but I don't really remember right now. He also talked about this woman that worked for him that he started dating when she was in her 30s, I believe, or early 30s. And he called her, as an affectionate nickname, Slutty Little Girl. He said that the nickname had come up when he had brought her to his mother's house. And afterwards, his mother said that she didn't like that slutty little girl he brought. So that's real nice. Wonder where he gets it from. And that he and the girl had started joking about that being her nickname. And so he would write her letters from jail and be like, hey, there, slutty little girl. And the prosecutor had him read one of these letters, which was gross. So he's doing himself no favors either for the jury, which is great. Absolutely none. He was also arrogant. He was combative. He was rude. He tried to control the conversation at all turns, even defying his own legal team. Like he was getting rude and short and overruling his own legal team, which was made of very, very high priced, talented attorneys. It went so badly and they were fighting so much that he went to the judge and said he wanted to fire his entire legal team and represent himself. Okay. (laughs) The judge was like, yeah, I wouldn't do that. That's going to go very poorly for you. I'm sure he didn't like that, though. Yeah, listen to your counsel. They basically walked down like how the judge was like, okay, here's how this is going to play out, blah, 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 blah. And basically what Tom wanted was to explain why he had gotten rid of his entire legal team to the jury. And the judge was like, you don't get to do that. You just look like your entire legal team quit. Do you feel like that's going to make you look innocent? Because you don't get to say, well, I fired them because they wanted a different strategy. No, they just are gone the next day and you don't get to say why. Yeah, you look like everyone left you. Yes. And Anne Rule says the old adage, I love that one, the attorney that represents himself or herself has a fool for a client. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he did not. He. I guess you end up being drawn to cases that have similarities. I think it's also a similar personality type that would try to control partners in this style that is so prevalent on our show that would also think that they can control the jury, that they can control the courtroom proceedings, that they could do a better job than anyone else at representing themselves. And at least in this case, the guy is actually an attorney because we've had some guys that are not attorneys trying to do this. Yeah. So all of this obviously did him no service. To the point where the prosecution even pointed out, Colm Connolly said in his closing arguments, the final area of evidence is the defendant's testimony itself, 
It's not credible. His demeanor on the stand is consistent with the person Anne-Marie Fahey described to her psychologist and her friends. It is consistent with the person who wanted to control every aspect of Debbie McIntyre. And it is consistent with the person who would not lie still as Anne-Marie Fahey embraced Michael Scanlon. Which is true because they're watching him try to control these proceedings. It's really fine because when you started reading that, I was imagining his defense attorney saying that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel like the defense attorney is like thinking all the same things. The defense attorneys dumped him like right away afterwards and have gone on record saying it was impossible to represent him. And it was a huge mistake and they wish they had never done it. Yeah. He's a liar, an arrogant bully, control freak, a dangerous abuser, and... He was also willing to throw just about anyone under the bus if it meant he came out on top. That's basically how the prosecutor ended his closing statements. Now, this was a death penalty case, and the jury did not take their jobs lightly. They reviewed evidence for hours upon hours. They even had an igloo cooler of the same model brought in to inspect. (gasps) Wow. And after three full days of going back and forth and looking at everything, they arrived at a unanimous decision. Thomas Capano was found guilty, obviously. We discovered that (laughs) earlier in the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty of first-degree murder. In 2017, juror Erin Riley Lee would break her silence to say what it was exactly that made them convict. And she told journalists Patricia Tallarico and Esteban Parra of the Delaware Online I think it was like it used to be like the Delaware News Journal, but it's called Delaware Online now. That originally, you'd be surprised, the jury was split half and half. About guilty and non-guilty? Well, it was more like, I don't feel like it's been totally proven to me. It wasn't like people who were like, this is what I'm going to vote. But when they took their initial poll, almost half of the jury did not think that they had seen enough evidence, real physical evidence to convict. So that's why they spent so much time pouring over all of the details, all of the transcripts, all of the evidence. And she said at the time, I think she was in her late 20s. So she was of a similar age to Anne-Marie. And she was of a similar height and body weight, even though she was a little shorter than Anne-Marie. And they decided to see how easily Aaron could fit into the cooler. I feel like I've heard something about this. Well, so Tom had described how upset he was that this accident had occurred and how much he had loved Anne-Marie. And he described kind of lovingly wrapping her in a blanket and then in desperation putting her in this cooler that he had bought to give to his brother but had never given to him before. You call 911. Yeah. You call 911. Exactly. And so they were trying to figure out if he was lying. So they had Aaron get into this cooler and it was very difficult. It was almost impossible. And she was shorter than Anne-Marie. And they tried to force the top down and they came to the conclusion that there was no way that a blanket was involved. Certainly not. And that he had most likely had to break her bones in order to make her fit in this cooler. Yeah, that wasn't done with love. No. And Aaron said that it was very traumatic when it got dark in the cooler while they're trying to shove it down and on top of her. And she is like feeling all these feelings. 
And she said that she just started crying and saying, I'm so sorry to Anne-Marie just over and over again. And she had been one of the people who was kind of on the fence about the guilt. And she said it just changed everything because it was like they all got to witness the horror of what he had done. And they also knew that he was lying. There was no way that he could have put Anne-Marie in that cooler the way he described. No way on earth. So he was probably lying about everything. Yep. So after that, that was like the cinching factor right there. They decided to convict. The jury also ended up recommending the death penalty. However, that was ultimately up to Judge William Swain Lee to decide. And unfortunately for old Tommy Capano, the god of his high school, he had not made such a great impression on his honor. I'd imagine that being the case. This one is like a slightly longer excerpt than I usually do for the judge's words, but it was like so on fire that I had to read to you guys the whole thing. So while delivering Tom's sentence, Judge Lee said, The defendant insisted on a chainsaw approach, attacking, maiming, and destroying the character and lives of lovers, friends, and family who had, in his eyes, been disloyal to him in his time of need. The defendant fully expected to get away with murder, and were it not for his own arrogance and controlling nature, he might well have succeeded. If the virtuous Tom Capano ever existed, he no longer did at that time. He chose to use his family as a shield, make his brothers and his mistress accomplices, use his friends and attorneys for disinformation, attack the character of the prosecutor, make his mother and daughters part of a spectacle in an effort to gain sympathy, chide his brother Jerry to be a man when the weight of the investigation fell upon him, rely on character assassination when that brother is compelled to testify, and insist that the family ostracize him for telling the truth, all of which he did. He even bullied, berated, and undermined the efforts of his own lawyers who believed they could gain his acquittal. The defendant has no one to blame for the circumstances he finds himself in today except for himself. The selfishness, arrogance, and manipulativeness of Thomas Capano destroyed his own family as well as the Fahey family. He did not hesitate to use his family to commit or suborn perjury or to ask for the mercy he specifically refused to ask for himself. His only remorse is for himself. Tom Capano does not face judgment today because his friends and family failed him. He faces judgment because he is a ruthless murderer who feels compassion for no one and remorse only for the circumstances he finds himself in. He is a malignant force from whom no one he deems disloyal or adversarial can be secure, even if he is incarcerated for the rest of his life. No one except the defendant will ever know exactly how or why Anne-Marie Fahey died. What is certain is that it was not a crime of passion, but rather a crime of control. By all accounts, she had ceased to be the defendant's lover, but had never escaped his sphere of influence, control, and manipulation. Anne-Marie Fahey could not be permitted to end the relationship unless he said so. She could not be allowed to reject him. The defendant's premeditation and planning was a contingency that perhaps he hoped would never happen, but did on the evening of June 27, 1996. He chose to destroy a possession rather than lose it, to execute an escaping human chattel. Whoa. Very succinct. Very well written. Whoa. And then he sentenced Tom Capano to die by lethal injection. Whoa. What was Tom's face like? I guess he was impassive. He wouldn't let anyone see a reaction. Well, that execution never occurred. I figured he would wiggle himself out of it. 
Tom's new attorneys, because his old ones were definitely not working with him anymore, were able to stay the execution through appeals, and ultimately he was resentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Great. And Andy's premonition <laughs> prediction. prediction. Yeah. My very accurate, definitely professional <laughs> prediction. So he was resentenced in 2006. The same Delaware Online article reported that Thomas Capano is no longer with us. He passed away in September of 2011 of a heart attack. It is believed that the heart attack may be intentional. Prosecutor Calm Connolly said that Tom had put on an incredibly massive amount of weight in the years since his appeals ran out. Judge Lee was quoted in the article saying he ate himself to death. There's no question about it. His father had died of a heart attack. He knew he had a heart condition. Once his appeals ran out, I think he chose suicide by food. Do you like get access to as much food as possible in prison? Maybe he could buy from the commissary. Wild. I mean, that's a choice. Like That's for sure. a choice to go out. I mean, his dad did die. And I think that one of his other brothers had heart troubles already. So he was like, that's my that's my ticket. Yeah. My ticket. Wow. Because for a man who likes to control everything, prison is not a great place. No. Debbie McIntyre is remarried and now working for a nonprofit organization in Wilmington. She obviously does not want anything to do with a story or Tom anymore. The Fahey's still mourn their fallen sister and grieve the fact that she didn't get to see their children grow up and more than anything that she did not get to fulfill her dream of getting married and having children, especially when all of that was so close to coming true with such a wonderful person. Yeah. So we do have a paranormal fun fact. Paranormal fun fact. (laughs) I don't know if this counts as a fact. Paranormal fun questionable fact. (laughs) Thank you. I was Googling Anne-Marie. It was actually when we were on the train together, I was Googling her because I wanted to see what she looked like while I was listening to the audiobook. Uh-huh. And I found a blog come up called The Year I Lived in a Haunted House. The blog is called Sookton's Space. That's S-O-O-K-T-O-N-S. And this woman, Suki, wrote about living in the same building as Anne-Marie. It had once been a house and it was chopped up into apartments and apparently she lived in the apartment right next door to Anne-Marie's. She did not know this at the time she moved in. And she talked about how like when they were moving in, when she was pregnant, that these teenagers were riding bikes outside and they stopped and they were like, oh yeah, you're not going to last long in there. Nobody does. You shouldn't move in. Like when they're moving in. So she was already like freaked out. And Then some of this like crazy paranormal stuff started happening to her. But she wrote specifically about witnessing a sad woman in white walking up and down the hall outside of her apartment. And she said at the time she had heard of the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey, but she had no idea that she had lived in that same building and just right next door to her. So she said that when she found this out, she felt like this is definitely Anne-Marie And she would say, quote, I know people might think I'm crazy, but I know it was Anne-Marie who visited that house from time to time. When she came around, the lights would dim and there'd be a great sadness in the room. Sometimes I would feel the sadness rip through me. I was watching a program on babies and weddings and I inexplicably began to weep. It was as though I could feel the pain that she felt, the longing for a family and for a real wedding. 
my sad visitor, and I felt helpless when I tried to communicate with her. Her life was cut short, her childish girlish dreams never realized, and her body sinking somewhere deep in the Atlantic never to be found. Oh, devastating. It is. But we don't know for sure that was Anne-Marie. I'd like to see think that Anne-Marie's kicking up like in whatever heaven she envisioned and loving everyone from afar. Yeah, she like went on to say some other like crazy shit about the place, but they moved out after a year. But she was like, couples who moved into that place would go from happy to domestic violence incidents. She got really depressed. Her husband started drinking heavily. Things were crazy. And then they moved out and everything got better. Okay, good. Yeah. Thanks again for everyone who recommended this story, Erica, Lorraine, and Terry. Wild story. It is. And as always, thanks to Anne Rule and the estate of Anne Rule for putting out such incredibly dimensional and rich true crime books. Absolutely. In conclusion, I've said it once. I'll say it again. Probably a lot. That married man, he is not your soulmate, honey. He's not. He is not. not. Find yourself a single one. He also is never going to learn a lesson that you shouldn't piss off your defense attorney. (laughs) Yeah, those are the people who are trying to keep you out of prison. Maybe a bad idea to get on their bad side. Yep. And as usual, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. 